Broken trust can be healed, but it's not just time that's going to heal it. You need clear guidance about what to do and what not to do. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I've developed a free video course called The First Steps to Rebuilding Trust. This course will show you what's needed to begin healing after betrayal. I offer guidance for the betrayed partner as well as the partner who broke the trust. You can access it for free right now by clicking the link in the show notes. It is so good to be back with all of you again. As you may have noticed, I took a few months off from the Illuminate podcast, and that was on purpose. I have a lot of projects going on right now, and there were several that I wasn't getting to, and I needed to finish and complete and just package everything up. And I've been able to do that with a lot of them. But there's one project in particular that I'm really excited about that I want to take just a minute to tell you about. This project is near and dear to my heart. I've been working with people for over 20 years, helping them restore trust in their broken relationships. And a lot of them wonder, what in the world can I do? Maybe they've stopped the behavior and they're trying to make things better. But sometimes the things that they do make things worse. And sometimes when they try not to do something, that makes things worse. So the roadmap to figuring out how to rebuild trust for a lot of people is a trial and error kind of thing and oftentimes leaves people feeling pretty miserable, both the one who was unfaithful and broke the trust and, of course, the person who was injured by the broken trust. And so I've had a really strong interest in trying to support the people that have broken the trust, teaching them how to become a trustworthy person And also how to create conditions in their relationship where it's most likely that trust can be restored. And so I've created a 12-week trust-building boot camp, an online course that walks people through lots of lessons and worksheets and videos to help them understand the process of what it takes to rebuild trust for long-term healing. I'd love for you to check out this course, and I'm offering it to all of my listeners as a pre-launch special. I'm gonna launch it on October 15th officially, but right now you can pre-order it for half price until October 15th. So you can go to my website, lovingmarriage.com, or you can go straight to the offer. The website is bit.ly forward slash trustbootcamp. And I will make sure I put links to these in the show notes so you can get access to the course. And when you pre-order it, You'll get an email confirming it, and then it will automatically release to your email box, and you'll start getting the lessons, and you can jump online and view the videos and get all the course content over the 12 weeks. It's a game changer. It's the culmination of 20-plus years of working with people trying to rebuild trust, and I've thrown in so many tools and strategies and resources to help people create the best and optimal conditions where they can rebuild trust. So please spread the word. This offer is available to anybody who has the link. And I look forward to joining any of you that want to take this journey with me on October 15th in rebuilding trust in your most important relationships. It's such an important thing. Trust is everything. So let's move on to the Illuminate podcast. I've got a great guest lined up for you today. She has written a book called Love and Betrayal. She has been affected by this in her own life. She is a researcher. She is a great voice for women. And she is going to talk to us not only about her book, but specifically what women need those around them to understand when they are going through betrayal trauma. Her name is Dr. Carmel White, 
and she has taught in the university setting for a number of years all across the nation, and currently she is working for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in their research department. She is such an articulate and sharp woman, and I think you're really going to enjoy this discussion we had about what women need when they're going through betrayal trauma. Women are so misunderstood when they're going through this. They feel crazy, and everybody around them often feels powerless about how to help them. And so we're going to talk about some specific things that women need and how we can best support them. So I'm excited to introduce you to Dr. Carmel White. Let's jump right into our interview. Well, welcome to the Illuminate podcast, Dr. White. Thank you so much for making time for us today. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, it's really exciting to finally get to talk to you about this book. I love this book, and I'm not just saying that because I endorsed it. Um, (laughs) I actually endorsed it because I like it. I don't endorse stuff I don't like. Yeah, you're right on the back, aren't you? (laughs) I know. I'd I'd actually forgotten I had done that, and then uh, the other day I was looking at it going, oh, that's right. Yeah, you're right right on the back. I do have a connection to this book, and I love it. I'm so glad you guys wrote it. And the book is called Love and Betrayal, as I said in the introduction, and it's a unique book because it, it does a great job of balancing research and personal stories, which um, I think is so important for people to have not only good information, but personal information, because this is very much um, a matter of the heart. It impacts people at such a deep, intimate, personal level that the stories are so critical, wouldn't you say? Yes, I totally agree. And I think for women, women often experience things in a story sense. You know, they have a narrative about what happened to them or what happened to somebody else. So I wanted to be sure that the book had that narrative focus so that women could relate more to it. Yeah. And and the narrative, I mean, for some people, that actually has more credibility sometimes than the research, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And especially, I think one of, you know, you're probably going to get to this, but one of the things that I think is a benefit of this book is it talks about many different women's experiences. So it's not just one woman experiences. There are books out there written by women who just reflect on their experience. We interviewed uh, about 15 women and hopefully, you know, people can see themselves in pieces of all of these women's stories. I'd really like to expound more on, um, you know, in the beginning of the book, you outlined the purposes of the book. And as I was going through and reviewing this in preparation for our meeting today, I was really struck by these, these four purposes. And I thought, you know, this is good information about not only what this book is trying to accomplish, but it can really also help people understand what they need to understand about women that are going through betrayal trauma. Um, yeah, exactly. because, because I think so many people don't understand even what to think or how they're even supposed to organize how they interface with these women, um, their family members, even just how to talk about it. So I think these purposes are, are multi-purpose, if you will. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So should we dive into them? Sure. So the first purpose of the book uh, is to... Um, help offer women kind of a roadmap for some of the decisions they will be facing, some of the experiences they will have, some of the introspection that they'll need to have to get through this time. I think a lot of times when this happens to a woman, um, she thinks, okay, we're going to get through this and then it's done. But Mm. this is often 
a, a very long process with a lot of uncertainty throughout it. And I think hearing um, about how other women navigate those questions and answers for their own life is really, really important. Um, uncertainty is kind of the name of the game when you're first finding out about um, your husband's pornography use. There's just so many things you don't know. What's the extent of this? How long has this been going on? Who else knew? What do I do now? Uh, and I hope that the book will offer a little bit of um, roadmap for people that are really trying to figure out what is this going to look like in my life. Um, and that that kind of gets me to the second point that I think is important about this book is that women are different. Um, even though women can sit together and have a lot of similarities, they're going to be very unique in how they react to this based on their own family of origin, their own experiences with sexuality. So it, it's very, very different how women um, approach this issue. Yeah. It's not a one size fits all. Yeah, I love that. I, I love that that first point that, like you said, uncertainty is the name of the game. I think that's yeah. paraphrasing what you say. But in terms of responding to women, then I'm thinking about you know certainly as a therapist who you know I've worked with this issue for a lot of years, um, but also as a as a bishop or a family member or a Relief Society president or. Um, even a spouse, even the person who betrayed her, um, certainty is probably the wrong approach, right? Right, right. <laughs> because there is nothing that's that's going to be average or normal. I mean, you can't go up to somebody and say, tell me how you felt about this. That's going to be your own private journey. Yeah. And um, I think there are some themes that women have to go through, um, you know, understanding what that means for sexual intimacy, understanding what that means for their spirituality, understanding what that means for their identity. I mean, this is a huge new identity that I am the wife of a pornography addict. That's a huge identity that women have to sort through. That's, That's right. never been part of who they were before. It definitely wasn't part of plan A. No. Huh? <laughs> in fact, a lot of the women in the book said, I did everything just like I was supposed to. Right. This was not supposed to happen to me. Right. Right. Yeah. My insurance policy was in place. And yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I've been paying on it for many years by doing all the things right. And look, yeah. this, this is not at all what I expected. Yeah. Talk about having to try on a whole new identity. That, that would be right. so disorienting. Right. Because yeah. I think a lot of women, um, because we don't talk about this that much in society, and especially we don't talk about it in some communities, women kind of are ashamed about it and they keep it really close to their vest. But I think if, if we could talk to a lot of different women, um, they would tell us that you're not going to be like anyone else and that this is going to be your own private um, Gethsemane for some people. Yeah, that's that's really descriptive. Absolutely. I mean, do you feel like, in terms of striking that balance between, um, like you said, having some themes, having some markers, having some things that are pretty consistent across, you know, most cases of betrayal trauma, is it helpful to give women, in your experience, give women 
some indicators of, of maybe that they're normal or that this is understood or that, or this might happen, right? Some predictive kind of things, or how do you, I guess, how do you strike the balance between allowing there to be the uncertainty and the personal experience versus trying to guide them with some of these markers? Maybe that's the question I'm looking for. Yeah. I think that's a really, really good insight. I think a lot of women will have to go through certain phases where they come to peace with something at one point of their life. So yes, they're going to have to have uh, some of those themes that they go through. But I think it's all going to be very individualistic and very much dependent upon your own personality. That's what we loved about interviewing these women is they... Um, brought their own personalities, their own strengths, their own struggles um, to this topic. And so, you know, one of the women we interviewed had dealt with an eating disorder for, you know, adolescence into her young adulthood and then, you know, through marriage. And that eating disorder added another layer of complexity to this whole problem. You know, what, what does that mean about how I feel about my body? Um, in light of the fact that now I add not only the anorexia to to my identity, but the wife of somebody that's struggling with pornography. Wow. Uh, so I think it's, I think one of the reasons that I wrote this book is that I think this is a very lonely yeah. problem. And I, um, while I tried to find support, uh, it, I lived in many different places outside of. Utah. And so I really couldn't find resources that I could use from a distance. There are now more resources, but I really wanted for women that were out there feeling lonely, like, who do I talk to about this, to be able to pick up the book and say, wow, she's describing my exact feelings. Um, And I think that happens a lot through the book. And so in gathering lots of these experiences, it really allows there to be enough variety so that women can hear and maybe normalize some part of their experience and know that they're not crazy. Exactly. Right. And, and that, that allows for that uncertainty, that sense of every person's going to have a different journey and a different variation, but on similar themes. And we need to make room for that variation, but we also need to allow women to, to hear that some of what they're experiencing is common and, and that it's normal and that, that there are things they can count on. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I, one of the things that I have found interesting is I thought for a time when I was first thinking about my husband's pornography use, um, how would my mother respond to it? Hmm. And then I thought, how would my sister respond to it? And then I thought, how would my friend respond to it? And each of those three women would have responded different ways, um, different ways than what I did, but they would have likely still had the same feelings. So I think the feelings are what is common across, across all women's stories, how you respond to it, what issues are particularly triggering. Those are specific to you, I think. I love that. I love that. So those themes are really where women can unite and join and feel validated. I love that. And yeah, so exactly. can can we be a little concrete here? Like if I'm, you know, if I'm if I'm a loved one or, you know, in a help, helping position, a support position, what would certainty 
versus allowing for uncertainty look like? What would be helpful versus not helpful in terms of responding? You know, just just sort of, you know, I guess generically here. I know there's, we're not talking about a specific example, but. Yeah. Okay. So in my experience, um, both personally and as I read through the book, the uncertainty of the situation is is dependent upon two or three different factors. The first factor is um, the extent of the pornography use um, that's going on with your husband. How long has it been going on? What kind of pornography? How much does he confide in you? That's something you don't have a lot of control over. And so there is complete uncertainty with where he's been, where he is now, and where he's going in all kinds of those areas. You have no certainty there. Mm. Um, And oftentimes what women will find out is that their husband will reveal just like the tip of the iceberg. And then over a period of time, they start to see the glacier that's behind the addiction. And, um, and some women even feel like they'd never got to the point to see what it was really like. So that's the first area of uncertainty. The second area of uncertainty is how you as a woman deal with that. I think women have different ideas about um, how they feel about themselves, um, about their bodies, about their sexuality. All of that then becomes uncertain uh, And I think for most women, right after they find out about it, they really personalize it to this is directed to me. You know, he's he's doing this. He's looking at this because I'm not good enough, because I'm not cute enough. Um, And then women that have lived with it for a while get to the point where I could have been a supermodel and it wouldn't have mattered at all. Um, but I think that shows women's uncertainty. I think the other thing that's, that's different for women, different women, is their um, ability to support themselves financially. If a woman um, doesn't have financial resources, um, hearing about this problem and wondering, is he going to stay in the marriage? Is he going to have an affair? And can I live with that? gets mixed up with the financial uncertainty. You know, how can I support myself financially is a question that women often have to answer if they worry about their marriage not staying together. And that that's a huge difference um, between women. You know, I think I think that was a huge deal from, from my own perspective. That was a big motivator for me in my career um, that I just never knew when the marriage was going to end. Um, so I think that's one uncertainty. And then the final uncertainty is a far more vague uncertainty, and that is um, how will the larger culture or community deal with this information? Because oftentimes... It's rare for a woman to find somebody that's supportive of of her pain or that understands what an addiction is truly like. And so those are really three big uncertainties that women have to deal with. And so when you're approaching someone as a helper, you really have to make room and not like Brene Brown says, you know, a lot of times when we're when we feel vulnerable and don't know what to do, we make the uncertain certain. 
And that's a very disconnecting thing. And in all these areas that you just so eloquently explored there, it's so critical to give women room to explore that, to think about it, to wonder, and to feel scared and, and nervous and uncertain about that without us swooping in to try and make decisions right away. Or is that what you're saying, Carmel? Exactly, yeah. yeah. I would say that the uncertainty of it is normative, that okay. all women feel uncertain. Um, and being able to have somebody in your corner that can sit there with you um, in your uncertainty and not uncertainty makes people nervous. That's why people have life scripts about how they want things to go. And so having someone that will sit in your corner, um, and, and sit in your uncertainty with you as you kind of go through all of these scenarios about what the rest of your life is going to look like, that can be really helpful. And, um, people, People aren't used to doing that. So that's one benefit that if like a bishop or a friend um, or a sister uh, reading this book, they would start to realize, wow, these are deep emotions. And there's not a lot of certainty here about one right way to do this. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, you know, it gets into one of the other points of this book for you is, is that this idea that there's not like a prescribed way to handle betrayal trauma. And again, even though, even though there are certain tasks, like you said, themes that women have to pass through, there's grief, there's loss, and it will look different for every woman. Um, do you find that it's encouraging for a lot of women to know that there's not a right way to do it? Or do you feel like that's discouraging for a lot of the women you talk to? I think it's highly variable. Yeah. You know, some women really like the roadmap and I should do this here. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, that we're, we have our personalities that we bring to this. And I think a woman, I was always a financial worrier. I always worried about the future of my finances. And if you're a financial worrier, this may be even worse for you. Um, yeah. if, if you're more kind of casual kickback, we'll see how this goes. It will still feel uncertain, but it won't be to the level of uncertainty that some people will feel. Okay. So uncertainty is built into it. It really then depends on how well you just in general handle, handle uncertainty. Yeah. And I think in addition to uncertainty is the betrayal trauma, because I think oftentimes, and this doesn't often get shared, people with betrayal trauma often look um, like they are having serious problems with life and people may have messages about them. So you may talk to your sister and she may think, oh, you just look like you're, you know, and the way you're acting, it's just so out there. I just don't get it. But that's the whole point of betrayal trauma. It doesn't look like what we expect it will look like. You're either in this fight mode, you know, I'm going to fight. I'm going to check everything. I'm going to watch for all of his receipts. You're either in that mode or you're in the, I just don't want to even talk about it. It's the fight or flight. And I think Betrayal trauma is a hard thing to live with for the person himself, but also for people around them. It, people don't look like they're acting normally or behaving normally um, to the circumstance or the situation. Just as PTSD 
uh, people that are suffering from PTSD don't often look like um, like what you would think somebody would look like if they're a big tough guy coming back from war. Yeah, and especially when you're you know you're watching them respond to something that's not even there, right? You can't exactly. even see it. It's it's invisible, yeah. and you're like, why are you so anxious right now? And yeah. of course, if yeah. you could peek in, you would see the storm. But on the outside, everything looks pretty normal and safe, and that's just what's yeah. so deceiving about it. Yeah, and I think you know the way I always explain it to people. Like, think of a PTSD person going down the mall, walking down the mall. It's all really normative, and all of a sudden they hear a loud noise, and the pathways in their brain immediately go to, "Oh, danger, danger!" You know, this is something that I've experienced before. For women that are dealing with pornography, it's the same way. They can be walking down the mall and all of a sudden they may go buy a Victoria's Secret and they see their husband checking out the Victoria's Secret window and that just sends them off again. Right. And it's like, this is just a window. A lot of people would say, why can't you just be cool with that? And the brain does not allow you to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And the more, I think the more you hear different stories and understand, like in your book, like you really see how delicate this is and how unpredictable this is for a lot of these women and the ways that they experience it, I think it will better equip anybody who's in a helping position um, to be more useful, to be more understanding and to be able to sit with and and support someone who's struggling with this. I mean, yeah. obviously the book is is hugely validating for a lot of the women who are going through it. I've had lots of my clients read it and a lot of them say it's actually really hard to read because it's so real, right? Yeah. And yeah. so they have to take it in small doses, which is totally fine. I'm like, this is not a sprint, you know, take your time in it. But yeah. that's how authentic it is. It's 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 real stories, right. real women's experiences. But I think those who are on the outside trying to help, um, they can be more helpful if they have a library in their head of all the possibilities. Right. And I I think I'm with you. People have told me that it's a very hard book to read, but it also opens their eyes to what women experience and emotions that they never even thought of. Um, You know, the uncertainty emotion we all have little bits of uncertainty in our life, but hearing about a husband's pornography addiction is an incredibly uncertain experience, and it just makes it worse. Yeah, and I, I think maybe you should lobby to get this put in as an appendix to the Church Handbook of Instructions, wouldn't you think? <laughs> <laughs> I think every bishop and stake president would be wise to to read this and understand qualitatively what it's like for these women so that there can be more useful help and intervention as they're, as they're working with these, these individuals and couples. So as you bring this up, I will give you a couple of examples of how I felt that benefited me um, personally. So, you know, my brother who was a Bishop in St. George, Chad Parker, um, he, when he found out this was part of my reality, he really, took it upon himself to educate himself. And that's wonderful. Um, it, it just made it so much easier to talk to him. And I also had a bishop who joined the church later in life, but it had a sister that was alcoholic. And so he knew addictions. Mm. And oftentimes those of us that don't know addictions, it's a really foreign looking oh, experience. Totally. 
And, um, but once somebody has lived in addiction, in some ways, they're very similar. A pornography addiction is, is in my mind, similar to alcoholism or similar to drugs um, in many ways. Yeah, I love that. I love that that example. And um, we want, I mean, this is part of why I'm doing this podcast and why we write and talk about this so much is because we have to share these stories. We have to share this information women and couples and people that are trying to heal from these things, they depend on that because right. sometimes they don't have words, they don't have a voice, they don't even know what to say. And there's a lot to say about this. Right. The other thing I think I would add that this book um, I really liked, my area of study professionally has been what they call lifespan human development. In essence, we look at development from you know, birth to death and one of the things that about a pornography addiction, when you first find out about it, um, you're not really sure what it's going to look like five, 10 years down the road. Right. Um, the benefit of this is that some of the women we interviewed had been living with it for long periods of time. And so you could kind of glimpse into what their life was like. The other thing that we had a great opportunity to do in the epilogue of this book is that before it went to publication, we re-interviewed some of the women that we talked to for the first part of the book and asked where they were now, you know, two years down the road since we'd interviewed them. And I think that's very hopeful when you look at the epilogue to see where, where they are after two years of their lifespan trying to figure out this problem. Wow. I think that's such a great point. Um, so that you can parachute into different stages of development of, you know, around healing from this so that a newcomer can learn from and maybe get some guideposts from someone who's maybe more of a veteran of this issue. Because yeah, a lot of women, my experience too, in our our programs and counseling that I've done, you know, just because you've, just because you're coming in for help doesn't mean you haven't known about it for 20 years. That's right. So there's, there's all kinds of, uh, you know, damage and struggles that have been going on a lot of times without help and support and isolation. So, yeah, these stories do matter so that uh, so that women can feel normal. And one of the stories I especially like in the book is Sarah. Um, I kind of wish I had known a Sarah when I was first finding out. Hmm. Because in my mind, she really did a lot of the right things right at the very discovery point. Um, and... I think that helped her marriage. Um, I think it also empowered her to say, this is what I will put up with. This is what I won't put up with. I just tended to put up with anything thinking, I really don't have much control over that. I think that's a really wrong approach for women to take. And Sarah offers a really good example of um, dealing with it head on when she first found out. And um, then, you know, the process that she goes through with him as they try to salvage salvage their marriage, just like there's uncertainty there for their, how the man will act, how the woman will act, and how the culture will act. The same is true for, for healing. The husband has to heal, the wife has to heal, and the marriage has to heal. That's right. So That's right. a lot of complexity. Yeah. Yeah, this is great. Um, I 
I think we've covered the, the the three of the four here, and just really quickly, let's talk about the last one. We've sort of covered this, which is that you wrote this book also just so that priesthood leaders, young adult women, other women, husbands, and other men, basically everyone, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but specifically, everyone. yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So I think a lot of the women that we viewed kind of felt like, you know, I'm sure my bishop thinks I'm just crazy yeah. or you know, my husband doesn't understand why I react to this way. Um, I think this book helps those people understand why women act this way, um, why it uh, seems irrational at times, but yet it is completely valid um, what the process that you're going through. And I think especially for young adult women, um, young adult women are, are especially in a church where abstinence before marriage is, is taught, they really are kind of at a disadvantage because they don't really understand sexuality. Yeah. And once you understand sexuality, I think this pornography looks a little bit different in how you interpret it and what it means for a marriage um, and I think for a young adult that's you know dating someone uh, would what questions do you ask um, I could give you a list of questions but some of the women gave you uh, ideas of what they would ask um, also understanding so what what do you expect if they say they have a been looking at it for a while does that mean they're healed for the rest of their life um you know all of those kinds of questions are really important for women as they're going in and trying to make a decision about marriage to understand yeah i love that and i again if 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 they're reading these stories and they're getting they're understanding the research which is laid out so well in here around betrayal trauma pornography addiction and just all those pieces then, you know, again, priesthood leaders, you know, w- women who are dating and engaged and, you know, they, they absolutely are armed with just better questions and they can, you know, they can approach this from a much more informed perspective instead of just crossing their fingers, hoping things get better. Right. And I think the other thing that the book points out is as you interface with these people, especially priesthood leaders, um, they're all going to be different. Yeah. They're not once one way of a priesthood leader. And as I mentioned, I had a priesthood leader that understood addictions and that made all the difference in the world. Many women commented how priesthood leaders don't really understand an addiction. And, and I think it's important to understand that men looking at pornography doesn't mean that a man hasn't uh, is addicted to pornography. That's right. Um, any more than a man drinking alcohol is an alcoholic. And so um, it, that's almost something that the bishop is not qualified or trained to counsel on. And it would be one of the best things the bishop could do is to say, I'm sorry, um, we're going to get you some professional help. That's not my my expertise. Yep, exactly. Yeah, they're not qualified to diagnose that. And I, I think you're right. 
it's it's almost like you know just spiritual first aid. That's really what they can, they can offer is to yeah. is to offer comfort and healing and support and resources. Um, yes. So yeah. I want people to know where they can find your work and your your resources. Obviously, the book. Um, is available where books are sold, but can you give us more information on where people can learn more about this and, and get access to all these resources? Well, um, the book is also available on Amazon or other um, online publications. I think um, it's also really important that women seek out therapy for themselves. Um, and I don't think it should just be any run-of-the-mill therapist. I think it needs to be a therapist who specializes in um, problems related to sex addictions or pornography addictions. Um, a lot of therapists don't understand the complexity of this. And it's really important that when you're searching for a professional that he has dealt with pornography addiction um, it will make the process a lot better. Um, I also think women, it's really important to find safe spaces to share your stories with. Um, women that seem to do better in adapting to this had eventually found those kind of resources where women are. Sometimes there are 12-step programs for spouses that are also good. There's also 12-step programs for spouses of um, sex uh, addicts, uh, anonymous, which also is an option for those that don't live around a place where there maybe is a church-based 12-step. Um, I think just knowing that you have a friend that you can talk to is one of the best resources you will ever find. Um, I also think that... Um, as, as women start to trust their own intuition as time goes by, they'll start to realize this is helpful for me and this isn't so helpful for me. Um, so I think there's some basic things that they can do, but I think women also need to steer where they go for resources. Um, so I love that. Yeah, it's really a combined approach. I mean, books books like yours are a great starting point to, you know, hear some common voices and get some direction and some resources and to know what, you know, what to pay attention to. Um, right. but, but that human contact of having guidance and support in a safe space with people that can help guide and structure this recovery is essential because there's so much chaos. And like we've talked about so much uncertainty and right. people need spaces to explore this and make decisions. It's not something you just sit down and figure out in one meeting. No. Yeah. Yeah. That, and I think that's most people, if they were like me or like people in the book that we interviewed, it's like, okay, you know, I tell them, go talk to the bishop and it's all magically taken care of, but <laughs> nope, <laughs> this is a lot deeper than that. Yeah. And it, it takes years. And I think when you first start out, you don't realize how long it's going to take for you to feel like you're finally whole again. Yeah, it's a sorting process, and there's layers and layers of loss. I think was it Dr. Menwala that came up with 13 dimensions of of trauma that women go through in sexual addiction, betrayal. That it's just so layered, and yeah, um, and and so yeah, I I'm so grateful for resources like this that give people a starting point. 
because whether you live in the middle of nowhere and don't have access, you still can have access to these voices and at least get some grounding and um, have a starting place. So there's even online support groups um, that women can attend if they live out in the middle of nowhere, which that's better than nothing. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll link some of those in the show notes so that uh, those of you who are listening who might be more isolated and don't have access to professional help um, can get some support. That's the beauty of today's day and age is that we don't have to do this alone. There's lots of support out there. Exactly. So thank you so much, Dr. White, for um, writing this book, first of all, with your co-author, Natalie Milne. And also, just for taking time to talk about this, I hope this has been helpful to all of you listeners. Um, I will I will post links and resources like we talked about in the show notes about how you can find the book. This is a fabulous resource. And because pretty much every one of us knows somebody who has been impacted by betrayal trauma, this is an excellent resource to have in your library to read and to understand so that we can make things a lot easier on these women who are already dealing with so much adversity and turbulence. I certainly don't want to be somebody who makes life harder on someone who's been betrayed. And also, make sure you stop by the Trust Building Bootcamp website. You can go to lovingmarriage.com or again, bit.ly forward slash Trust Bootcamp. I'll put links in the show notes where you can get 50% off of the upcoming 12-week Trust Building Bootcamp. Grab that before it launches on October 15th for this reduced price. I'm so excited to share that with you. And then one more thing, if you are so inclined, I would love to get some support from you for the Illuminate podcast. I've put a donation link in the show notes where you can go and donate to the podcast to keep it running. Obviously, these things take time and equipment and effort, and it's something that I'm doing as a labor of love and to offer lots of support to people out there. But if you do want to support this, and make it keep making it available for people. That would be awesome. And so just click the link in the show notes and uh, really do appreciate your sponsorship and your support. In my next episode, I am going to interview Dr. Carmel White once again, but this time we're going to talk about specifically spirituality and what changes for women when they are betrayed in their marriages and what changes with their relationship with God and with their faith and even how they see the world. So many things are impacted by betrayal trauma, and we're going to drill into this topic of spirituality and spend some time there. And I think you're going to find it very engaging because so many women have a crisis of faith, and so many women feel judged by others when they ask questions and wonder if God's there for them and some of these other really personal and challenging questions. So stay tuned for that, and I will see you in the next episode.